What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Hide and seek is a game that I'm sure all of us have played. But if you're a little child, hide and seek is something that you would rather play than many other games. It's something that if you're hanging out with a bunch of kids or hanging out with your own children, trying to figure out what in the world should we play to make up this hour, hide and seek is definitely one that's a top priority. If you, I don't want to insult your intelligence today, but if you're here today and you don't know what hide and seek is, you have a seeker who goes to a corner or a place at a door and counts to a certain number, whether it's 30 seconds or a minute or 10 seconds. And in that span of time, the other people go and hide. And the way I played growing up was hide and seek tag to where if you could get back to the base where the seeker counted before they tagged you, you advance to the next round. And as you begin to grow up, you begin to figure out there's many variations of hide and seek. There's another one called sardines. And this is the total reverse of hide and seek. That is you have, uh, you have one person go hide and everybody else is the seeker. And then once you find the person hiding, you hide with them. Now I say that to say this. Sure, it's fun to try to hide from the seeker, but there is one seeker that none of us can hide from, and his name is Jesus. That is God. And in fact, in Psalm 139, we go back to the Old Testament, and we are discovering that this psalm was written by the very hand of David himself. And it was more than just a prayer that David prayed. It was an actual um, prayer that was divinely inspired by the Spirit of God, that God is teaching us an overarching lesson about himself. Yes, we are going to discover this psalm is about the omniscience of God, how God knows all things. Yes, this psalm is about the omnipotence of God. Yes, God is all-powerful. And yes, the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere at all times. But in the midst of this psalm, we see that David is crying out to God in a prayer. And in fact, there's some troubling verses in our modern American mind. Verses 19 through 22, we think to ourselves, how could David, the most spiritual man to ever live on this earth, perhaps, pray this way amongst these enemies of God? Saying that he has perfect hatred. How can this be when the Bible says that if we hate our brother, we've murdered them in our hearts? All that to lead to this thought. If you could leave with anything today, it is the title of my sermon. God is the all-seeing, all-searching, sovereign God. God is the all-seeing. God sees it all, my friends. And God searches it all because he's the sovereign God. The title of my message today, I know it's a little lengthy, but it is the key thought for today's message in addition to the title. And so if you walk away with anything, as we think about these 24 verses, I believe this statement, this this title is a summarization of all of these verses that David penned by divine inspiration. And that we would do well to remind ourselves there's no place on this earth that we cannot hide from God's presence. Surely Adam and Eve found that out. But the question I want to ask today is simply this. What does 
the sovereign God and Psalm 139 have to do with my life? Surely there's a span of some two to, to, to 3,000 years in, in history. Well, probably more like 2,500 or 3,000 years, give or take a few years in history between us and when David wrote this psalm. And, and I know that as, as I've been meditating in this psalm, I've tried to pinpoint exactly when David uh, was alive when he wrote this psalm. And, and just, to, to, just to share with you, and it's all speculation if you open up a commentary or a theologian and they say this is exactly when David wrote this psalm. Because listen, there are no clues into this psalm of when David could have wrote this psalm. But at some point in his life, he's writing and they would pray these psalms and they would sing these psalms and here, in a sense, is a prayer, but it was also put to music and there at some point in David's life, in the life of the Israelites, they would sing the song as a prayer to God. But as we think about what is the sovereignty of God and Psalm 139 have to do with our life? I'm glad you asked that because I want to share with you five thoughts today. The first one is found in the first six verses, and it's this. God is the all-knowing, sovereign God who intimately knows us. God is the all-knowing, sovereign God who intimately knows us. God knows everything about you, my friend. He knows your origins. He knows who your parents were. He knows who your grandparents were. And he knows the descendants that you have no idea who they were. He knows them too. He knows the color of your eyes. He knows the color of your skin. He knows the type of hair you have, whether it's straight, wavy, long, short, or none of the above. (laughs) He knows it all. And here in the very first verse, David is lifting up his, his heart to God and he says, oh Lord. And if you're a student of the Bible, you know this is the word for Jehovah or the word for Yahweh in the original language, meaning that this is exclusively the God of Israel. And he says, oh Lord, you have searched me. Now this word search, would you say it with me? Search. Many, many years ago, I might have told you this, but, but I, I thought I lost the keys to my car and I had the keys in my hand and I got into my car and I started the engine and, and I got on the road and I began to drive and it dawned on me that, man, I, I forgot my keys. And so I turned around and I went back home, took the keys out of the ignition and put them in my pocket and, and got into the house and, and searched everywhere only to realize that they were in my pocket and I had them the whole time. <laughs> Maybe you've been as foolish as me or forgetful as me. But here, this idea of the word search, it means that you go into a place and you examine every corner. And so God is being invited by David to examine every single corner and area of his life. And what a great psalm to prepare us for next week in our revival meeting. That God, would you examine every aspect of my life? Because by the way, hear the word, it says known me. And here we know that God knows everything about us and he knows the motives and intentions of our own decisions that we make. And then verse two, David says, God, you know every single time I sit down. God, you know every single time I stand to my feet. God, you know those aspects of my life and you understand them from afar. Yes, we know that God is in glory. He is on his holy, righteous, sovereign throne in heaven. And from afar, he looks from eternity 
into time and can see every single aspect about my life, but to go further, every single aspect about your life and every single aspect about everybody's life all at the same time. God is omniscient. In other words, he knows everything. Think about this. There has never been a time in eternity past and eternity future and in the present when God did not learn something new. <laughs> so even before you were ever thought of, before the earth was ever created and spoken to existence, God knew everything about you and God knew everything about me. Isn't that amazing? It's no wonder why David is lifting up his heart and praise to God because of this. And then he says in verse number three, it says the word compass. And this is not necessarily, yes, we know the English word compass can mean the utensil that you get out to figure out if you're going north, south, east, or west. But this word gives the idea to sift and to winnow. Imagine if you were, maybe, maybe you still do this. If you do, God bless you. But if you take weed and you actually sift it and you go through all that process, hats off to you. If you make your own bread, that's awesome. Good for you. The way I make bread is I go to the store and I buy it. Yes. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for technology. But it gives the idea that you would take that, that, that grain and you sift it through and it would go through that winnowing process. Here the Bible says that, that he goes through this intense process of surrounding himself around my daily paths of life and getting to know the very details. That's convicting. Because God knows the intimate details that none of you know about my life. That only he knows. And the same thing for you. That even your husband or your wife or your children that you even live with in your home, that even things they don't know about you, God knows. And it says he is acquainted. That is, he is made full aware of every single way of your life. Verse three, it says, there is not a word in my tongue. In other words, there's not a word that I've never thought about saying or that I ever did say or ever will say that God doesn't already know about. He sees it all. He knows it all. He's above all. And he examines all. And here it says, he knows it all together. So there's no point in trying to get in the corner that, that you can hide from everybody else in your life. But listen, my friends, God knows about it. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? I mentioned them earlier. They, they sinned against God. They broke that forbidden fruit commandment in Genesis where they should not eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there they were deceived. And there Eve ate first and Adam partook. And then man entered into what we call a fallen state. And we've been in that fallen state for thousands of years. And we will remain in that fallen state until we enter into heaven. But there they hid themselves behind some plants and some bushes and they began to sew themselves leaves together to make clothes. And they could not hide from God and his presence. And David says here in verse five, you're in front of me, you're before me, you're behind me, you're on every single side, every angle. If I turn to the left, you're there. If I turn to behind, you're there. If I turn to the right, if I turn to the front, everywhere I go, you're there in my life. And he says, such knowledge. He says, my little 
finite brain cannot comprehend the vastness of the knowledge of God. And he said, it is too high. He says, it is too lofty. It is way too much for me to handle. And I am definitely an advocate of getting education, but I want you to know this, that you could be like the late Reverend or the late Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and you could have 12,000 volumes in your library. You could. You could have commentaries from the Puritans. You could have uh, books uh, from, from the most greatest people that have ever written in the English language. You could have studied multiple languages and you could be fluent in 10 or 15 of them. But all that knowledge will never compare to how brilliant God is. If you could just take all of the most intellectual minds of our day today, let's say we find a thousand of them that are just the cream of the crop of their intelligence and you put them in a room. I say this respectfully that that knowledge that they have doesn't even amount to the size of the fingernail on God's pinky. And I say that respectfully. God is the all-knowing, sovereign God who intimately knows us. But secondly, what is this passage? What is Psalm 139? What does this sovereignty of God have to do with our lives? Well, secondly today, God is the all-present sovereign God who is constantly with us. God is the all-present sovereign God who is constantly with us. In verse 7, he says, where can I go from your spirit? He says, where can I flee from your presence? He says in verse eight, if I go up into the heavens, in other words, he's saying, if I go up into the place where the sky is, where the stars are, are just hanging and dangling in the outer space and, the, and all the constellations, if I go up into outer space, God, you are there. If I make my bed in the place of the dead, if I take a shovel and I dig as far down into the ground that I can find, God, you're present there. If I take the wings of the morning, what in the world does that mean? Gives the idea here that David had the idea that the, the speed of light, that the rays of the sun are beaming down onto this earth. And if I could travel as fast as those rays in the sunlight, God, you're still going to be there. He says, if I go to the deepest parts of the ocean. Now, David did not know this at the time. But to our best understanding, the Mariana Trench, which is some 36 plus thousand feet under the sea. If we could somehow get our scuba diving gear on <laughs> and dive into the ocean and swim all the way down there, God is there. <laughs> he says, verse 10, even there shall thy hand lead me. He says, God, even if I hopped in a spaceship, I know it's not in the text, but let's just think about our times. God, if I hop in a spaceship and I go to Mars, God, you're there. God, if I hop into a submarine and I go to the deepest part of the ocean, God, you're there. And you're going to lead me and you're going to guide me and your right hand will hold me. Gives the idea here in this verse, at least my speculation is that here, it's, it's, it gives the, the, the idea of the, the guiding providential hand of God. That is no matter what part of this world you're going to live in or where you go or what season of your life, God sees it all and he's present in every season 
of your life. That should encourage us. That whether I'm still in high school or whether I'm in college or whether I'm far beyond college and high school and I am now taking full advantage of my senior citizen discount status, no matter what area of life I'm in, God is present and he is there. In verse 11, he says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Now, remember, David lived in a time where there was no electricity. Surely they had ways to see at night, I'm sure. But he couldn't walk into his big palace and flip the light switch on and say, let there be light, and there is light. He could have used a candle. He could have used a torch. He could have used those types of things. But the, the sense of, of darkness in our culture is, is far and few between. Because even when it is dark outside, there's lights everywhere. And if you could, if we could just find a place in America where we could go to and it is extremely dark, we know that probably the, the greatest place would be into a cavern. And so if you could go down into a cave and turn all the flashlights off, that is total darkness. And here, David says, even if I'm encompassed and surrounded by darkness, God, you're going to light my way. He's present. He's present when the, the sun is shining. He's present when the sun has set. God is everywhere, and we cannot escape his presence. So today, maybe you're here, and, and you're running from God. I, I urge you, you cannot run from God's presence. Just ask Jonah about that. Jonah ran so far from God that he ended up being swallowed up by a great fish or a whale, the Bible says. And there he had a meeting like no other meeting with God. And God got a hold of his heart. God is the all-seeing, all-searching, sovereign God. He intimately knows us. He's constantly with us. And that should encourage us today. But thirdly, what does this text have to do with our life today when there's thousands of years between us as a gap between David and our life as a modern Christian? Well, thirdly, from verses 13 to 18, we've talked about the omniscience and omnipresence of God, but now we're going to talk about the omnipotence of God. God, thirdly, is the all-powerful sovereign God who wonderfully made us. God is the all-powerful sovereign God who wonderfully made us. And he did. And I love this passage. In fact, verses 13 to 18, we see that this section is so amazing because it reveals to us that God did fearfully and wonderfully make us. Look at verse 13. He says, you have possessed my reins. This word reins in the, in the Hebrew Bible it gives the idea of the actual organs inside your body, your kidneys, your lungs, your heart, all those things God has possessed. In fact, he, he created that. It says, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. This word covered, it, it it's, doesn't give the sense of where I'm going to take blankets and I'm going to put it over the little baby at night so the baby can stay warm. It gives the idea that, that God stepped in and he knit us together in our mother's belly. And he says this, he says, I will praise thee. 
We should lift up our hearts in praise. When we get a good dose of the human anatomy, it should remind us that this was not a fabric of chance and of what we call Darwinian evolutionism, that that our human anatomy is the very product of an intellectual being named God Almighty, Yahweh, Elohim, Jesus, who is Lord. And today we can see that, that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. In fact, Psalm 139 is a great passage of scripture to remind us that God cares about life, not just after the womb, but while the life is inside the womb. Now, I don't understand all the the details of science about exactly uh, when the heart beats and when somebody there begins to breathe through the um, help and assistance of the mother. I don't understand all the science behind the baby and the infant inside the womb. But here it gives the idea that this text is reminding us that there is a time when there is an infancy with the infant. That there's a beginning to the beginning. And that in David's times, There is no way anybody could look inside the womb and see that take place. Now, surely we have all this technology today that you can go to the doctor's office and they can put this device on top of your stomach and you can see somewhat of what's going on inside the womb. But David didn't know about that. And so he goes on to say that how every human being, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, boy, or girl, whether you reside on the continent of Africa or Asia or Europe or Australia or South America or Central America or, or North America or wherever you reside on this planet, you have been fearfully and wonderfully made in the very image of God. And we should praise him. It says, my soul knows right well. And surely when God opens up the blindness of our sinful hearts, we are enlightened by the truth that God spoke this cosmos into into existence. And not only did he do that, but he took dirt. So if you could, we go outside and we get a little dirt from underneath the grass and we put it in a jar and God took dirt. He did. And formed man out of the dust of the earth. He formed Adam. He formed Eve. He took the lower rib of Adam and created Eve. Two fully functioning adult people, an adult man and an adult woman, and called them Adam and Eve. And he created the genetics inside our body so that we could produce offspring. And that's what David's talking about. God is amazing. It says here, it says in verse number 16, or or excuse me, verse 15, my substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Now, why in the world would he associate the lowest parts of the earth with the womb? Well, remember, just as they didn't have the technology to go and look underneath the ground unless they dug it up, they didn't have the technology to look inside the womb. So it was an analogy here that just as we can't see inside the, the womb, we cannot see below the ground. And so David goes on to say in verse 16, he says, your eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book, all my members were written, which in countenance or continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. 
And now as he thinks about how the process about how God created us and knit us together in our mother's womb, he says, verse 17, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. Now this word for God is Elohim in the original language, in the Hebrew Bible. And it gives the idea, it gives the sense that this is the supreme deity of deities. There is no other God. So in context here, in verse number one and in verse number four, and and in several other places here in our text, he uses the word Lord. But he also, in the same context here, uses the word for God. And it just simply means that the supreme deity is Jehovah, is the God of the Bible. And he says, how precious are your thoughts to me, God? How great is it? Some of them, have you ever been to the beach? Maybe you like going to the beach. If you're an American, probably you do. One of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of going to the beach is because, I'm, I'm sorry to put this image in your, in your mind, but I don't like seeing people run around in their underwear. I just don't like to see that much flesh, especially of people who shouldn't be running around in their underwear. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> But here, the Bible says, let, let's just say we're going to go to Myrtle Beach. It's probably one of the most popular beaches on, on the East Coast. Let's say we're all going to go on a church trip. We're going to go, he, go hear some music group sing, and, and we're there at Myrtle Beach. And we all decide that we're going to try to calculate the grain of sands on the shore of Myrtle Beach. Surely there's no way we could do that. And David says that if I tried to count the number of the sand... The thoughts that God has towards me is greater than that number. Fascinating. Fascinating. Because the God that says this about David is the God that says this about you and the God that says this about me. That because we have been fearfully, wonderfully made in the image of God, God looks down and he sees us as his most prized creation. He says, when I awake, I am still with thee. Now, so far we've talked about how God is all powerful and and he sovereignly and wonderfully made us, how God is all present and he is sovereignly and constantly with us and God is all knowledgeable and he is sovereignly, intimately knowing us. But now I wanna share with you fourthly today. God is the all righteous, sovereign God who will surely judge us. God is the all-righteous, sovereign God who will surely judge us. In our Western mind, when we read verses 19 through 22, it's almost as if we wish this verse or these verses were not here. Because we've forgotten that there is a godly sense of hatred and there is an ungodly sense of hatred. There is hatred that that God would condemn, but there is hatred that God does condone. And so here, the Bible gives this idea, the word word, um, hatred here in the Bible, it's a word that could also be translated enemies. And so when we think about the word hatred in these verses, we need to think about that these are the enemies of God that are protesting God, that are very antagonistic and very, they they got their hands up and they're shaking their fist at God, unwilling to repent, unwilling to confess. And therefore, they are God's enemy. In fact, the Bible says that the wicked, 
Those who oppose God, those who oppose the gospel, those who oppose the word, the Bible says the wicked will be turned into hell. It's tough language. In Psalm 11, verse 5, the Bible says that God is not just angry with these wicked people, but he actually hates them. And to our mind, in this whole concept of God is love, lovey dove, 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 dove. I mean, God is just full of love, and he is love. But God is also a God of wrath. And so, in our human mind, as we read verse 19, David is saying, surely God is going to slay or bring vengeance to the wicked. He's going to bring vengeance, and only God can do that. Both Testaments speak about that. Romans 12, and throughout the Old Covenant, the Bible is clear that God will bring judgment and vengeance to the wicked men. And then he gives the idea here that these men, they go around and they're killing people, and they're slaying people who are completely innocent. The idea behind you bloody men. Then verse number 20, it says, For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. And then check it out now. He says, do I not hate them, O Lord? Notice he says the word for Yahweh, Jehovah God. Don't I hate those that hate you? In other words, David is associating that if they are an enemy of God, God is going to destroy them. And may I just respectfully say this, that if you're here today and you do not believe the gospel for all eternity, you will suffer the vengeance of God. You will suffer the wrath of God and you will be described as the wicked in these ancient texts in the Hebrew Bible. That God is angry with those who, who will not bow to the lordship of Christ to say that Jesus is Lord and, and confess with their mouth and, and come to his saving knowledge through the gospel. You don't have to be the wicked. You don't have to be labeled in that in God's sight. You could be pardoned from your transgressions. And then he says, am I not grieved with those that rise up against you? He says, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. In other words, David is saying this. He's saying that if there's an individual, whether Jew or Gentile, that hates God, they are therefore God's enemy, and therefore they are an enemy of me as well. Obviously, these verses have troubled many over the years. And it's why we call this psalm one of the imprecatory psalms. David, if I could, may I just share with you how I believe this passage? Uh, I think verses 19 through 22 is reminding us that God is the all-righteous sovereign God who will surely judge us, that we will all stand before him. And if you die in a state that is unregenerate, you will be described as the wicked and an enemy of God and destined for, for the lake of fire. But my friends, that's why Jesus died. That's why the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. This is that general or universal call of all humanity to bow their knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And this verse, these verses should summon us to get out into our world and to share the gospel with people that we know. Because if they die in a wicked state, if they die in a state that they are an enemy of God, then they will suffer the judgment of God forever. 
But then the last two verses, verses 23 and 24, I share with you fifthly and finally, God is the all-forgiving sovereign God who mercifully pardons us. God is the all-forgiving sovereign God who mercifully pardons us. The same word here in our English Bible that is in verse number one and verse 23. He says, search. He says, know. He says, try. He says, see. And he says, lead. What a great prayer. So here as we think about this, we need to allow God access into our life. What I mean by that is, surely at nighttime, maybe you go to your door and you lock the door. Maybe you put the deadbolt on. Maybe you have that little chain that's dangling and you hook that on the door there. And you lock up your door so that if a burglar is going to break in, they've got to go through like three steps in order to get in. And then you might have an alarm system and you might have, um, if it goes off, it'll call the police. You might have all those details. And I think that there's times in our life where this world has locked God outside of their lives. And then there's times where believers will get hardened by specific sins that we will lock God outside of sections of our life. And that's dangerous. And that's why we need to be fully transparent and vulnerable like David here and say, God, search me, examine me, investigate me thoroughly. And he says, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. God already knows it all. He knows every thought that you've ever thought or will think. And here he says, and see if there be any wicked way. So remember, he's just praying about these wicked people. And he says, hey, God, I don't want to be like these enemies. I don't want to be like these people that are, that are just shaking their fists up to you. God, and if there's any kind of wicked tendencies in my life like them, God, show me, reveal it to me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. God can mercifully pardon us. If I could, I want to take you to God's courtroom. And in God's courtroom, the only way to be pardoned is by his mercy. If I stand up and I'm trying to be my own lawyer, <laughs> maybe you've tried that before. <laughs> maybe you've succeeded, maybe you did not. Whatever the case is, if you try to be your own lawyer in the courtroom of God, my friend, it's a lost cause. You say, well, you might try to go through all these commandments, say, I've done this and I've done that. And he'll say, well, hey, not everybody. It says to me, Lord, Lord, we'll enter into the kingdom of heaven. Today, if you want to escape eternal incarnation from God's love and grace and mercy and escape God's wrath and indignation and judgment. The only way is to acquire the proper attorney. And his name is Jesus. And he can step in and he can say, hey, this man or this woman's debt has been paid on my account. And now they have been pardoned. 
and released and all fines, all consequences are no longer necessary. And so as we come to this psalm, I invite you this week to maybe meditate in this psalm each day. I invite you to pray exactly what David prayed in verse 23 and verse 24 as we think about fall revival. It's a a time of spring cleaning in our own spiritual life and we all need to do it. Because listen, God is the all-seeing, all-searching sovereign God. He, He mercifully pardons us. He will surely judge us. He wonderfully made us. He is constantly with us and he intimately knows us. My friends, God is sovereign. And there's nothing we can do to hide from his presence. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.